Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 27th, 2022, episode 205, Building Boxes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the episode. I'm Kevin England, and for this show, I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit. I feel like there's some episodes that need to be in the catalog that pertain to doing things for those getting started in beekeeping, and also for those who want a little more in-depth understanding of some facet of beekeeping. So today, as the title of the show alludes to, I'm going to do a full episode feature on the ins and outs of building boxes. Now, perhaps that's a bit of a misnomer, as some of what I will talk about includes bottom boards and roofs and the like. Think full hive stack, but much of the energy is going to be about hive boxes, hive bodies, deeps, mediums, supers, whatever you call them in your area of the world. Here's a taste of some of the things we're going to talk about. Prep steps, equipment inspection, assembly and fabrication, instructions on how to glue and nail, as I've learned to do it, paint systems, paint techniques, tips, tricks, And as an add-on, I'm going to share an aside about how I build boxes in a way that's a little different than the tried-and-true conventional method. Not an endorsement, it's just simply a share for consideration. And then I'll run down the ways to build frames. The episode's going to be a long one. I'll do my best to provide a set of show notes that has a guide as to where in the show you can find particular topics, you know, to look for for, say, how to paint and jump right to that area in the future if you want a primer on that. The show's going to have three sections. The first is about fabrication, the physical fastening the woodenware into cohesive boxes. Then I'll bring you part two, which is about the rundown on how to paint. And finally, part three is dedicated to frame building. I know by the notes I have prepped that there's a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in to part one building boxes. So guidance for building boxes. I envision that this time of year, there are a lot of beekeepers spending time in their workshops, their garages, their basements, heck, even on their dining room tables or living room floors, building high boxes and frames in anticipation of the upcoming season. That entails typically a number of tasks to procure, construct, prime, paint equipment, along with building out new frames for setups. I am not sure I've ever done this on this show to this extent, and I suppose there's no harm if this is a repeat of some of the small things I've done in the past, because this is likely to be a single, more comprehensive, all-in-one-place to review the topic of how to paint and build a hive kit and put together frames. So that's the focus of the entire episode today. First things first, let me assume we're building Langstroth boxes and that we probably have a mix of deeps and mediums. For each of the high bodies, box if that's a more basic term you identify, there are four manufactured pieces sitting in front of you. Two long sides, two short sides. Right from the start you have a choice to make regarding construction and painting. More so about painting, I guess, but I'll share the details of construction too as we go along. When it comes to painting, you can paint the pieces independently and then fabricate it. 
meaning glue and nail the boxes, or you can follow the more conventional path, which is to glue and nail all four pieces into one unit and then paint it after it's completely assembled. In the instructions I'm about to cover, I will start with the conventional approach, build, then paint. But I do intend to tell you an alternative method of painting first and assembling later, because by my way of thinking, there's a twist to this. And when I share that, you could choose that approach if that suits you. Sounds good? Hope so. So let's go to the process. First thing, preparation considerations. For me, and like many jobs you take on in life, the first step is preparation. What I'm talking about here is the beginning of the process is centered on a few things, your workspace and prepping the woodenware. When considering where you're going to work, you should think about a few things ahead of time and primarily it has to do more with the painting aspect of building boxes. When you paint your gear it requires a few considerations, cleanliness, drying time, odors, paint drips, and a couple other things. Know that it takes time for your paint to dry, and while the quality of the paint job is, you know, really not that fussy for a hive box, you do want to have a clean, dry, dust-free place to work. You will drip paint, so avoid where drips on the furniture, carpeting, hardware floors will be a concern, or at minimum prep the space. All this to say, not everyone has the proper workshop, garage, dedicated place to do these things, and I've known plenty of beekeepers who have fabricated their equipment on their kitchen tables. You know, inadvertently, you've spilled paint on the kitchen floor. Paint soaks through some drop cloths. If you make the wrong cho choices, you can get in trouble. Ask me how I know. Know that painting is going to smell up the whole house, and paint thinners to clean brushes and such, they require their own handling. I think you get the gist that now you could take the right considerations for the situation you have at hand. At minimum, a few well-placed plastic drop cloths, maybe some old blankets, sheets, towels, or whatever you have, will go a long way to protect the surfaces from paint, nicks, gouges, scratches, tools, in the woodenware, marking up your kitchen table, you know, take some proper planning for where you're going to work. As to getting started, when you listen to this guide, consider the steps and work through the preparation for each of the activities planned. For construction, you'll need nails and hammers and screwdrivers and a cordless drill might be useful. I like to organize my tools in work trays and I have a few favorites for the task that I keep in the garage where I put everything in the tray and bring it out to the workspace. For painting, you're going to need paint trays, primer, paint, rollers if you're using them, brushes, rags, and the like to get the job done. For the physical hot boxes, you'll need to bring them to the space, lay them out, inspect them, plan for a place for them to sit during construction and when they're drying and so on. You know, the point here is to mentally walk yourself through the process and just try to get organized. Nothing slows you down or adds to your burden to constantly stop and start what you're doing to go out and get something that you forgot. Uh, you know, the more poetic way to say this is plan the work and then work the plan. So by my way of thinking the basic steps and again, following the conventional path of building boxes, 
and painting them, you would inspect and prep the woodenware for assembly, and I'll talk about what that means in a moment. Construct each of the boxes with glue and nails. Prep the surface for primer and prime all the outward facing surfaces. Let the first coat of primer dry, then prep the surface again by providing layer number two. Let the primer fully dry and prep the surface again for paint layer first one top coat. And when the first top coat is dry and ready, prep the surface one more final time and finish painting. Set the boxes aside in a warm place and allow them to cure. And we'll talk about frames at the end. Now these basic steps can be done like an assembly line or you can do those in batches. What I mean by that is you could choose to assemble all the boxes at once before painting or you can assemble a few, paint a few, then set that batch aside while you repeat the process for the remainder of the boxes. It's kind of all up to you. So the basic outline of steps is in place. Let's deconstruct this a little bit further. And in this telling, my plan is to both give you a little more on how to for instructions, as well as provide you some tips and tricks that I can share along the way. A short aside is during the telling, I'm gonna spend a little time of energy elaborating a paint process and advocating for why I recommend you do it a specific way. Okay, off to breaking down the process. I said step one was to inspect and prep the woodenware. Here's what I meant about that. Let's just focus on one box. We'll say it's a deep. Look at the four pieces of the box parts in front of you. Take the time to inspect each of the pieces for any problems. Now many beekeepers are not gonna take this step. They'll just simply glance at what they have and jump right to fabrication. What you're looking for is fundamental, and I would hope that 99% of the time you will have no problems with this, but I feel it's important to do a survey beforehand. To explain, the tolerances, the quality of the woodenware coming from the larger suppliers and many of the smaller suppliers is of high quality these days. The joints are cut right, the holes are fully drilled and clean. Splintered cuts that didn't go through the mill right were rejected before the package was prepped for shipping. The box fingers are not chipped, cracked, uncut, and well, you get the picture. In short, the quality of the woodenware should be 100% ready for assembly, but alas, occasionally, you'll find that something is not quite right. And to my way of thinking, it's best something discovered at the get-go. I always just take a moment, and that's all it takes, to ensure all the holes are drilled well. I look at the joints, and if there are any errant wood artifacts from the milling process present, I clean them off with a little file or sandpaper right from the start. I lay the pieces on a flat surface to ensure that they don't have a bow to it, or anything that presents signs of warping. I look for knots in the wood, and if there are knots, I look for any instabilities of them that you can't poke them out of the hole. I made up the finger joints in a very simplistic way and ensure the tolerances are not off. On this point, let me tell you once, we ordered some boxes for club assembly session. We were having at North 100 in high school, and darn if they were not off. Someone shifted the wood somehow during the milling process, and the joints just simply weren't going to made up. Now that 
is a one-off occurrence, but I've seen it at least three times in my tenure as a beekeeper. Last but not least, I inspect for cracks and, well, you get the picture. Just make sure this stuff is all sound. If there is something wrong and you discover it after the fact and you've done things to the materials, it might not go your way when you call the source to explain your problems if they ask you if you've molested the components in any way. So do it right from the get-go. Dry fitting. I think this is an important step. After the cursory inspection, the next step I take is to dry fit the boxes. No nail, no glue, just wood on wood, putting the boxes together to form the finished shape. If there's one thing that beekeepers do not do that I feel causes some challenges for them is they skip the step. There's something about this practice that I feel provides a benefit as it somewhat preps the wood surfaces where they made up and later when you go to fit the boxes for the final time, I feel they come together easier, better. It's almost like it burnishes the edges where they meet, compresses the wood fibers and it's a benefit when it comes to final assembly. I make it a practice to dry fit the boxes and push on the corners to move the boxes back and forth where they hinge together. It's kind of the accordion method to get that burnishing action I just spoke of. Maybe it's in my head, but I feel like the light burnishing helps you later when you're trying to get the boxes to made up and they're more willing to come together when you are working to get them square for nailing. So speaking of square, a couple terms, square and flush. If you begin with the end in mind, the most important thing is getting the boxes square and true. Truing up something alludes to making it level, balancing it out, getting it aligned. In the case of, you know, building boxes, these two things are in play. When you build a box, you want it to sit flush when set upon either the bottom board or another box underneath it. You also want anything set on top of it to be flush too. As to aligned, you will want all four corners of the boxes to match when the woodenware is mating up. But look at it differently. If the box is not square, if the box is not true, it could leave gaps or be out of alignment with boxes it mates up with, and that's going to cause fitment problems. It could also have a bit of a twist to it and not sit flush or create gaps when you place a flat inner cover on it, for example. The simplest way to solve this is to build the box using a few tools that will check the quality of square and true and flush along the way. And earlier I had alluded that there's probably a number of ways to go about everything we're doing here. I'll prescribe a couple simple ones, but if you find something that works for you, that's good. Now, considering squaring up a box for assembly, you could just use a traditional carpenter's square and check the square as you go. Or you can go a completely different route and clamp corner clamps on each of the corner. Corner clamps will serve to hold the pieces exactly at a 90 degree angle until you affix the box. Now maybe it's a combination of clamps and the square. You square it up and you hold the clamps to hold it set. You, you get it. 
you know, it also helps, and this is kind of dependent on where you're building the woodenware, to have a flush surface to test it on. An example, in my case, I often work in my garage, which has a flat, level, concrete floor. I could take that box that's partway through fabrication and set it down on the floor to see if all four corners are sitting flush. If they don't, I could take some corrective measures by applying a little bit of force to get the box squared up or work out the twist that's preventing it from sitting level. So job one in fabrication, make it square, make it true. Okay, assembly, gluing. Physical assembly starts with gluing the joints in a conventional method. And while nails are certainly good at doing the job of fastening the wood joinery, the pressures and conditions bee boxes are exposed to over the course of their lifespan create these stressors on the holding power of the nail system. And it just makes it unsuitable for the job of securing the joints without the help of a two-part system, nail and glue. Let's examine the potential weaknesses of nails alone. In the course of service, boxes twist, they hold a lot of weight, they push and pull on the woodenware joints as you're twisting to insert the hive tool. These twist turns forces cause the holes that the nails have, because the nails are harder than woodenware, to egg out. And the gaps that occur from those movements remove contact with the friction against the nail. Another thing that's at play is moisture, causes the wood to swell, causes it to shrink, and that could also influence gaps against the nail surfaces. Additionally, as nail heads are pulled upon with twists and such, the surface of the nails could burnish off over the years, making them smoother and negating some of the grip they had from the friction against the woodenware. Yeah, it's kind of all theoretical, but I spent a moment of time talking about all the what-ifs to say, when you glue the box, it provides a bond of wood to wood. And that, coupled with the holding power of the nail, makes them a one-two system to secure the joints for a period of service that could be decades. Now, when it comes to glue, use exterior glue. That's the choice you want to do for the job. And there's one primary rule. It has to be exterior grade. Two brands are pretty common in the United States. Tight Bond. That's one brand. And the other is one that we probably all grew up from our childhood called Elmer's glue. Both of these glues are pretty friendly in that they're water cleanup. And, you know, some of them, I know type on two, I think it is, maybe even three, are fine to use in food safe applications. When you're using glue, you have to consider the application of the glue to the woodenware. Most of the glue that you buy at the store comes with this tip that has the tapered spout, which prevents it from clogging and also helps you distribute the glue onto whatever you're gluing. In the case of gluing boxes, it's not very good. It's not going to work for you because you're trying to glue in those funny shapes for the finger joints, especially 
you're going to need some help there. Uh, you're going to want another device to serve the purpose of spreading the glue to desired areas and for ensuring that you get an even application. Now the place you glue your boxes is on the inner joint of the finger joints. You'll also want to put a dab of glue on the base of each of the joint cuts. And then, using whatever implement you choose, spread it up the sides of the joint. I have to talk about the surface of the glue so there's no ambiguity in describing it without, you know, showing you pictures of it. It's not going to be easy, but let me take a crack for the purpose of being thorough. Each of the boxes has a finger joint cut out by the milling process, and when they made up, it results in the surfaces of one piece coming into contact or connecting with the other. Anywhere the touching surfaces come in contact with a corresponding piece, any surface that creates a touch point between those two needs to be glued. So you have the inside of the finger joint, but you also have the face that comes into contact with the board that it mates up with. Now as to the implement to spread the glue evenly, the choice is yours. Some use small paint brushes. A parts brush with its small bristles works good here if you know what one of those is. I've seen people use a folded piece of cardboard, a popsicle stick, and other implements. What you use is not as important as what you're trying to do. In the end, you want a thin, even coat of glue that is going to form a seal of sorts between the surfaces of the wood when you fit the box together. The coating only has to be a thin layer and you kind of develop a feel for it as you go along. If you have too much, you will know it as the glue is going to squeeze out all over the place and you'll have excess glue dripping down from the surfaces of your joints upon affixing things together. You're just simply looking to apply a thin coat as best you can to the entire face of the surface, any wood that is mating up with another piece, and you'll achieve the objective. While you're working on this, there is one thing to keep in mind when gluing wood, and it has to do with the drying time of the glue. This could get technical, and I don't feel there's enough value in going down that rabbit hole. But that being said, there's a term in the properties of glue that expresses how long it's going to take for the glue to dry to a point of no return. The concept of open means that you will have a window from the time you spread the glue on the wood to the time it dries out and it either bonds what you mended together or becomes so dry that it won't bond things that you have not put together yet. When it comes to the window of time, the open, if you will, of exterior wood glues, they have what you might imagine is a viable window for what you are doing, but drying times are highly dependent on the environmental factors of where you're working. All this to say that the temperature of the room, the humidity of the day, any wind that is blowing, all of these things get to determine the open window you have to glue your pieces. If you did something like glue the first piece, then glue the second piece, glue the third piece, and so on, then you come back to the beginning and try to join your stuff together, perhaps it could be too late. So you need to keep a watch on the glue and make sure that it's still wet and viable to mend together. The judge, 
is skinned over glue. That's not what you're looking for when you're mating the joints together. You might be thinking, duh, Kevin, why are you expending all this energy? To me, and it's the only time I'm going to emphasize this in this feature, the devil's in the details. Any boxes that fail, whether they come apart, the paint fails, comes down to the small things in this process. So to my way of thinking, grasping some of the dynamics, like how does glue dry, will keep you out of trouble. And you could carry on to bear with, <laughs> with me through the rest of this piece if any of this minutiae I'm calling out uh, just becomes tedious. So when it comes to glue, wet to wet, it will dry when it's bonded, but if it's skinned over already for exterior glue, you may or may not get a form of bond. And one of the things that happens is when the glue touches raw wood and dries out, it tends to soak in that wood a little bit and it creates that bond that you're looking for. If it's dry already, it may not work the way as intended. Now let's assume you're going to figure out how to glue, but eventually you're going to get some times when your glue got a little too heavy or whatever. We'll presume you're doing one box, glue all the surfaces and slip and slide the joints together to press like you did the dry fit earlier. You can almost be assured that some glue will squeeze out of the joinery and you could take a wrung out washcloth to wipe off any of the drips that might be present. The washcloth shouldn't be wet, just damp. And there'll be no concerns about impacting the joints. You know, again, just make sure the washcloth's not so wet that it saturates the joint and dilutes the glue that you just put in. But do take the time to wipe off any of the glue that's on the wood surface because eventually that'll lead to a paint failure. Now, one thing I didn't talk about that some might know about is do you glue one surface and mate that to a dry counterpart or do you glue both sides and make a wet glue to wet glue surface match? Even seasoned woodworkers differ on this. And I simply go the conservative route and do the wet to wet joinery. There's some aspect about clamping that also has a factor on this, that if you clamp the boxes together, then the surface contact is far more guaranteed. And you could probably rely on glue one surface and put it to a dry, and that pressure will make the two mate together. But by my way of thinking, especially if you're not going to clamp, a wet to wet lets the wet join together as one blob when it's put together in the joinery and you know if you didn't apply pressure from clamps you're going to get a glued joint you know hopefully that all made sense and if not maybe going into too much detail just simply glue all the surfaces in clamp if you can more on that in a bit so now you have your boxes glued let's turn to assembly with nailing and do a little bit of a nail primer it's time to lock them in with the nails. And first things first, there's a proper nail to use for the best results. If you're not familiar with the nail hardware, and truthfully, how many people out there are, myself included, 
then there's an easy out for this. Almost all of the large suppliers will sell you the right nails that are designed to work with the box hardware that they sell. Just buy the nails from them directly. Now, generally, the nail that's perceived to be the standard for a high box is a 7D, D as in dog. A 7D nail is commonly two and a quarter inches long, that's 57.1 centimeters, and the dimension or thickness is matched to the size hole that is drilled in the woodenware from the manufacturer. Now, the penalty for getting it wrong Either it's not going to hold well, or it's going to crack your wood. So it really is incumbent upon you to try and find the right size nail. If you choose to source your nails at the box store, be assured that you will find tags in the nail aisle, sometimes it's a little bit cryptic, that mark the size, and you're going to see 7D on the labels. Now there's an exception to the 7D size rule. If you take the time to look at the finger joints for a B-Box, you will note that most designs, a conventional hive design, feature one finger that's different from all the others. The common design for hive joints is the top edge is usually smaller in size than the rest of the lugs, and as such, it's not as beefy as the regular fingers. If you were to use a standard 7D nail in that hole, you would run the risk of cracking less substantial woodenware of that smaller finger. To combat this, and again, this is just a rule of thumb, some will use a 7D for every hole except for the small one. They'll switch out an inch and a quarter nail. You say an inch and a quarter nail, where am I going to come upon one of those? Later, we'll tell you that's the same nail that goes into a top bar of a frame. So when you buy frames, they typically give you extras. Just find a couple of those and use those for that top joint. Now that you know the right size nail, let's talk about a nailing procedure. There's a physical process to driving the nails that I would recommend. And actually, as just said, it's more of a procedure. We started with a box that's been fitted together after being glued. The tension of the joinery is going to hold the box in place, and now's a good time to square the box and checks for true. When you have the box in square, I want you to take four to six nails and insert them in the holes in one of the corners. What you do next, the actual order of it is not really critical, but I'll describe to you how I would do it. Um... I start by tapping the nail head of the center joint with the hammer. I'm not looking to drive that nail home. I just want to set it partly so it starts to hold. Then I check the square, and while holding the square on the box, I tap a second nail opposite of the one I started with. And that one, I drive all the way home until it's flush with the wood. And then I turn to the partially driven nail, and I finish it. I check the square, and then I repeat that process with the top set of nails. Partway with the first one, check the square, drive the opposite nail, check the square, and then finish the first one. What you're doing here by maintaining the square is making sure that you're not taking the corner out of square when driving the nails. Now, if you check the square and find that the box is 
tweak to touch, simply grab the opposing piece of the woodenware, manipulate it to get it where you need it. And to be clear, what I wasn't suggesting was to place and drive all the nails at once. And then when the joint is secure, check to see if it's square. It's too late. Too late. You can't fix it. Uh, you simply can't manipulate the joint when everything's locked in. But if you're checking the joint as you go, once you get that first corner set up as square, then the good news is when you move to the next one, that one's square and it'll help you square off the next one. Now, the further you get into the process, corner one, then corner two, then corner three, the closer you are into locking that box that's square and true. Now, one thing to keep in mind is to take the steps to not only make sure the box is square, but to set it on a flat surface every once in a while and make sure it's true flat to the ground. Time for a Kevin moment. If you want to avoid all this nail and check pattern outright, there's another way. So far, I've been simply inferring that you use a carpenter square to keep things in order. But if you consider clamps, then the job at hand can get a lot easier. There are two types of clamps to consider and they could be used independently or you could use them both together. Long clamps, ones that are staple in woodworker shops, can be employed after gluing to hold the boxes square and true. And, as I said earlier about the glue thing, they exert pressure on the joints that forces glue contact in the woodenware joinery. Not just the natural surface contact, but surface contact under pressure. Even better for holding things square are a different kind of clamp, corner clamps. They hold everything in place depending on how many you employ. You can physically lock in all four corners. And for what it's worth, that's my go-to way. End of Kevin moment. Now the major benefit of employing clamps is that you could take your time and drive the nails with little concern that you're going to knock things out of square. Because if your clamps are locked in the right way, you'd be hard pressed to knock them out of square, especially if you're using the corner clamps. You know, while talking about nailing things together, you should take a moment and speak about hammers and hammering technique. I have a little experience, or maybe fascination, in watching people nail boxes together. I've done that at association meetings that we've hosted to help beekeepers learn how to build equipment. One thing I could tell you is the technique for using hammer, it varies. I'm not going to tell you there's one way that's best, but I will tell you a way that I learned and I'll share it with you and you could consider whether this is going to work for you. So the first thing, it starts with your hammer choice. By my way of thinking, a moderate hammer is a good thing for the task. You want something that's heavy enough to drive the nail, but not so heavy that it's hard to control. That's what I mean by moderate. If it's so heavy, it will disallow your finesse to finish driving the nail without overdoing it. Now you really don't want too light of a hammer as it brings fatigue over time. And you tend to hammer a lot of nails when you're building boxes. And sometimes I see beekeepers swinging away and foregoing some control as time goes on. 
if I had to pick, I think lighter is better than too heavy, but you know, you should look to see in the beginning if you could find the right size hammer to do the job for yourself. Now I said it starts with a hammer, but there's a bit of technique here too. One of the things you want to avoid doing is dinging the wood with the hammerhead. That means every strike on the nail and you don't inadvertently pound away and bash the wood. The best way to counter this is to hit the nail well in the beginning and then lower the force used to finish driving the nail. What I mean is when you first start to strike the nail, go ahead, line it up and hit it. Hit it with the force and drive it one half to two thirds of the way home. Then once you get it that far, use a touch of finesse to finish it and back away your force being used and focus more on control to finish setting the nail where that final blow puts the nail head flush with the wood. When you start to put boxes together, take your time to focus on the first couple of nails, stay attentive with your technique, and then you'll get into the groove of this. And if you find that you're fatigued and you begin to make mistakes, plan a break. Go get a beverage of some kind. When you have all four corners nailed, that's it. You got it nailed and the fabrication is done. If you did it well, the boxes are square. They sit flush on a flat surface. There's no trace of glue stains on the wood. And the wood is blemish free after good hammering techniques. That's fabrication. Now we're going to turn to painting the equipment and that's the next part of our feature. Part two starts with a painting primer. I'm going to take a moment to set the stage for what takes place before we dive in. Painting, depending on your point of view, is something you could bang out or something you loathe. Most people who do not like painting or are not good at or don't have good success. How about we see if we can help that situation by talking about painting and specifically the process that leads to good adhesion, a good surface, and more importantly, longevity. Let's start with a quick overview of the steps and then we could break them down in detail, sharing instructions, insights, and some tips along the way. The paint process goes in this order. Surface preparation, primer coat one, surface prep, Primer Coat 2, Surface Prep, Paint Coat 1, Surface Prep, and Final Coat. Did you notice how much Surface Prep is going on in there? Yeah, so that's the process. Let's walk the detailed process. It starts with Workspace and Surface Prep. The place where you paint should be clean, free from dirt and dust, and you really should work in a well-ventilated area. Paints these days are far more friendly, but they still use a lot of chemical solvents that will dissipate into the air. Sweeping the space with a broom creates dust that takes time to settle. If you sweep the space, allow time for any dust to settle and then Wipe those surfaces down or even consider vacuuming. Now, even a vacuum blows dust all over the place too. So you might have to dust with like a traditional cloth. You want to do what you can to combat dust and dirt as it not only wrecks the finish of your paint, 
but it undermines the adhesion and it leads to failure. From workplace workspace prep to surface prep, even if the wood is pristine pine, it looks clean to the eye, you should still take the critical steps to prep the surface. Uh, you know, uh, actually, I'm going to share a tip that belongs right here that many would not consider. And I'm going to share it here for the consideration that it needs to be covered before it results in dust that has to be cleaned up. And you would want to get this out of the way before you do your workspace prep. So just a short aside for this quick tip. Let's start surface prep by considering sharp edges in the woodenware and specifically the corners and edges. I want you to think of the edges of the wood as they are milled on how sharp the saws are that cut through the pine. If you run your hand along the edge that is formed by the saw, you'll find that they come to a tight, sharp corner, which feels natural and seems good, but really is a detriment to a good finish. The reason is, as you paint woodenware, corners cause thin spots because the paint can't coat the surface well on those sharp edges. Now, when you're painting boxes, you simply paint the faces and you don't paint the top edges, the inner faces to the rabbits, but on some parts of your hive, the roof, the bottom board, you do paint all the surfaces. And that means that the paint crosses over that 90 degree bend and this tip can make a difference. Now I would go as far as saying, if you paint the side of a box and round it off the corners, you'd start to paint the top edge and that would create an envelope. I'm getting ahead of myself. The tip is to take a piece of sandpaper and sand off that hard corner. Just lightly round them off. Now the visual on the finished tweak would be a vertical surface that would follow the face of the board. And then when it transitions to the second surface, it has a slight curve and the paint can follow from one surface to the second in one complete thickness. The opposite effect with a sharp corner is the paint would come up to the corner from the face of the board, then it would be thin at the actual micro edge of that corner, then thicken out when going on the other direction for the second face. It would be far better to have a uniform thickness as that's the thin point in the paint that leads to scrapes which compromise the contiguity of the paint and allow places for water to get into the wood. Let me make sure that point is emphasized. Hives get moved, slid, scraped with hive tools, and you could provide a surface that can protect the wood from being exposed and from water getting behind the painted surface. If you do that, you stand a chance that your paint system is going to last longer. So step one, if you optionally choose to follow this tip and guidance is just lightly knock off all the sharp edges and obviously that creates dust and chips and whatever it is you're doing so you'd want to do that before you do your prep now let's get into the more traditional mindset about surface prep flat surfaces that we're going to paint stated in simple terms here you want a clean surface for optimal adhesion 
If you work in a professional paint shop, they will tell you to use things like tack cloths and other techniques. And that's all well and good, but surface prep in the home, in the garage, can be done with some pretty basic steps. So here's what I do. The first thing is you, you employ a number of clean cloths in a series of steps. First, take a clean rag and perform that first wipe. This knocks off the loose dust that has settled on the surfaces. Then, with a second slightly dampened low lint cloth, you do the second wipe. Just damp cloth on anything and that picks up what the first one missed and it pulls off any of that dust that stubbornly clings to the faces of the boxes in the cracks and edges and so on. There's a key technique about this that has to be reviewed. You wipe in one direction on all passes and try to avoid re-wiping over an area that has been gone over. Said another way, you do not wipe up and down like you're washing a window or something. All this does is redeposit what you have pulled off. You use constant pressure in one direction and then switch out your wiping cloths as you move along through the process during the day, which means you should have a lot of rags available to you. I will wipe something and then go outside sometimes and take the dry rags and shake them out to dislodge any dust and I'll reuse them. But the wet ones I rotate in. Is it all necessary? Actually, it's kind of paramount to critical and here's why. When you're fabricating the boxes, you're often touching it with your hands and leaving unseen oils on the surface. Moving things around while fabricating also stirs dust up throughout the day. If you just sanded the piece to blunt the corners of what we talked about, you're certainly going to have dust on the surfaces. If the surface is not clean, especially if there's any chance of residual oils, you're going to need to consider something that's going to strip that off. Most times with raw pine, you could simply use a clean, damp cloth with water, as described, ensuring at the end that there's no contamination prior to painting. I would be careful of using cleaners here, ensuring that you're not going to insert something that upsets the adhesion of the paint applications to come. What am I talking about? I don't think soapy water. I love Dawn dishwashing detergent, but I wouldn't use it here. The light dampness of the surface will dry off from the damp cloth, but as far as I know, the paint systems for latex will be okay on a lightly damp surface if you wanted to hurry the process along. And we'll talk more on paint systems in a minute. If you are using oil base, you should at minimum let that dry off so it doesn't feel wet to the touch. Now, if you know what a tack cloth is, and you have them, use them. If for some reason you feel like there's oil deposits, then you can consider something that has a degreaser in it, maybe like Dawn, but just make sure you wash it off so there's no residual detergents on the surface. I would venture, however, that for most new woodenware that you just ordered and got shipped to you, a simple cloth dampened with water is going to do the job for you. Now, if you think back to just a moment ago, that step that sounded like prep 
and then prep and prep. That's still right. When your first coat of primer is dry and you're going for the second coat, use a clean low lint cloth and wipe the surface down. If you've ever seen the air on a day where the sun was setting and the beam of light is coming through a window pane, it shows those errant particles of dust floating in the air. That's what you're combating and it's there all the time. Even though the surface has a fresh paint of coat on it, at all times, some sort of film is forming from the normal dust in the atmosphere. And just taking the simple step in between each process of painting to wipe it off between coats is useful. So prep seems const, you know, constant and complicated, but honestly, it's just a matter of due diligence for a better outcome. With prep out of the way, let's talk about a conventional paint system, primer and paint. The tried and true method for painting a wood surface for outdoor use is to paint the woodenware with primer and then complete the job with a top coat of exterior paint. The reason to present this idea this way is because nowadays the traditional primer and paint thing has got a bit more muddled. In recent years, paint companies have been formulating new products that purport to be paint and primer in one. Personally, I can appreciate the time savings from an all-in-one system. With the right conditions, combination products not a bad choice for your job. This is a boon to those who would like a more simplified and quicker process, but personally, I don't think it has an application for painting beehives. Kevin moment. To some that might be fighting words, and let me say out loud, you do you. I, I'm not going to begrudge someone who wants to make their choices in life. We can all have our independent impressions about things and go our own way. But in my case, I'm not on board with it yet and simply going to recommend otherwise. This does not stop you from making your own choices. I'm just telling you a paint system that I've used in my operation and what I teach newbies. But I could leave that at there. You could do whatever suits you. And if you find something that works for you, I'd love, love to hear it. So end of Kevin moment. I've shared in the past that I have extensive background with paint systems. When developing practices for the sign business that I used to own and operate for over a decade, I worked with paint systems for over, you know, the early part of my career. And what I'm going to share with you is what I know that comes from the craftsmanship of making sign blanks that stood the test of time for my customers. If you understand paint systems, then you'll know that primer has a different function from the top coat. Resins that support adhesion, properties for filling, leveling surfaces, sealing, assuring uniform coverage, blocking stains, and so on. That's the job of the primer. The top paint surface, on the other hand, it's formulated differently. They serve to lock onto the primers, seal an envelope, provide protection, resist abrasion, protect against UV, and so on. To my way of thinking, the all-in-one paints, the self-priming paints, the no-priming paints, they aspire to achieve all the functions of a primer and a paint, but in certain instances, they're just not going to get to the same level as a two-part system. Now, what I just said, if you read between the lines, they're 
applicable, meaning the primer and paint combination products for some uses and not recommended for those in the know for others. I would venture to guess that if you asked a commercial painter, one with a brush in their hand day in and day out, and they love to save time, make no mistake about that. They will tell you not to use it in the harshest common applications of all, something that sits outside in the weather. Something specific to beekeeping, our boxes are subject to something rather unique in that the moisture is trying to some way escape from the inside to the outside. For that reason alone, by my way of thinking, the best insurance you have is when water is coming from underneath this you need the binding power of a primer designed to lock the paint system to the wood. I will admit that I haven't tested these all-in-one products on beehives, but I have used them around the house and they seem okay for interior use. But I think that the finish was a little chalky for them and I don't have a faith. I don't have faith for this in the exterior application. I did look into this when the Paint Plus Primer emerged on the market. And there wasn't a lot of information out there as to their performance in real world applications back then. That was a while ago. So I did do some research while prepping for this piece as to what the impression is these days. And the small sample I reviewed seemed to leave me with the thoughts that the formulation to be all things has some compromises in place. Again, back to the properties hiding, binding, coverage, durability, resisting, flaking, and so on. And while there's a bit of balance to these things, in the end, it was reported that they don't measure up as well as a two-part system. I should also share that this class of paints seem a smidge pricey. In fact, if this still holds true, it's more expensive to buy a paint and primer together than it is to buy a paint and separate primer paint system. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but to me, it's not about the cost per se. It's about the successful paint system. And since I have my reservations with the all-in-one systems and my current methods are solid, I'll leave the experimentation up to others. Again, you do you. If you want to share an experience, please take the time to tell me you've been successful with this. Email Kevin at bkcorner.org and I'll be best to share that out to everybody. Well, talking about paint systems, I think it only right to discuss water-based paints versus oil-based paints. Again, in my sign days, I worked with both forms, had extensive experience with oil-based enamel exterior paints. Nowadays, I don't want to deal with the paint thinners, brush cleaners, and the like. In fact, I got out of the sign business because I started to develop reactions and illnesses to the harsh chemicals in the enamel-based paints. This was back in the day when we hand-lettered things with paint, not the stickers and decals they use today. The truth is, most times, the durability of paints is adequate, whether you choose a water-based system or an oil-based system. And beekeepers that I know prefer the easy water-based cleanup and quick drying times of water-based systems. If you're using oil-based systems, make sure you allot enough drying time to let the paint applications chemically dry. That's a fancy way of saying they have to dry all the way through. An oil-based system tends to dry at the surface, but underneath it's rather soft and it takes quite some time 
for the thinners and the binders and the oils and such to dry chemically all the way through to where it forms that hard, firm, final coat of paint. The paint systems that they use for water-based paints tend to get there far more quicker. So some of this is rather philosophic and right now I'm going to take a different tact. I'm going to actually disclose the paint systems that I use. I have tried a large number of primers in the marketplace. The truth is they almost all work as advertised and really do a good job of getting the job done. However, I could share that I have run into problems with compatibility with top coats on some occasions, save for one particular brand. And let me expound on that. Back in the day, I painted a bunch of blanks with different primers and then matched them with different brands of top coat. Bear, Sherwin-Williams, Glidden, Benjamin Moore. You get the picture. Every once in a while, something didn't made up. A Zinzer brand primer match with, say, a Glidden top coat, making this up for illustrative purposes, by the way, would fail. I made up that example. Glidden paint would work well with Kills, however, but if it topped a Zinzer primer, which is a brand I actually did use back in the day, it would flake over time. Again, that was all illustrative. I don't know if Glidden works with Zinzer. Coming back to when I had my sign shop, I made dozens of wood panels. I painted them with paint systems and I set them up in the weather behind my shop. You know what I learned? Dollar for dollar, you can't beat Kills as your primer. Kills brand, K-I-L-Z, worked for me. At least that's what I found. It had the best hiding power for knots in the wood, best adherence for any kind of paint going over it. It works well with a brush or a roller. And to this day, the primer I use on my house, on my hives, and well, anywhere there's a primer needed is Kills. I mentioned Zinzer. If you can't find Kills, this is a really good fallback. I had two primary paint suppliers when I was in business. One sold Zinzer and the other sold Master Chem's Kills. They both have really good product lines and I was comfortable using both of their primer lines. Now traditional primer bases are white, but if you're choosing to paint your boxes some color other than white, maybe another light color variation, do consider asking the person behind the paint counter if they could recommend a tint that would be suitable for the top color. Just saying that out loud so you can consider the option, it's really not too important with a high quality top coat. That's just gonna cover whatever's underneath. As to paint preference, that was some inside baseball on primer. Let me talk about top coat paint. I have a preference there too. In all my testing, Benjamin Moore is the go-to brand. It is hands down the best quality paint per my longevity tests. I have to say that I'm not a snob and in a pinch, I use box store name brand paints, but if I had my druthers and I do try to make it a point to go this route, 
I choose Benjamin Moore water-based semi-gloss or gloss-based paints. I will say that one thing about a hive box is they last for a long, long, long time. And you might as well use good quality paint because the duration of the cost that you spent to the time that it's in service, I think is negligible for the money you save if you go with an off-brand. So when I could do it and I have the time, it's Benjamin Moore. Now maybe you don't have Benjamin Moore or it's not something you're familiar with. I'll give you an alternative. Paint manufacturers and some sales experts who have a lot of experience with paint systems would often make a very reasonable recommendation to just buy a quality paint system and stay within that one single manufacturing line. The backstory of that is many manufacturers have extensive experience in testing their paint system product lines together, their primer coupled with their top coat. And as you might imagine, it's designed to work together. In this way, it could lead you to more confidence when standing in the paint aisle at the big box store. Just simply stay within the product line. And always, if in doubt, ask the person behind the paint counter and go with the flow. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> no, really, the, you know, if you're buying Glidden and, you know, the one thing about a person buying a paint counter at, say, a Home Depot or a Lowe's is... They talk to people who buy paints, and if things go wrong, you could sure they get an earful of it. Now, sometimes they might be motivated to sell the more expensive products. I hope that's not the case and that they'll actually give you good advice. And surprisingly, they're probably familiar with a lot of people who stop in, you know, this time of year to buy paint for beehives. It happens every year, every spring. I'm sure they're well aware of that. Now that you have some ideas about primer and paint to buy, let's talk about laying it down. When it comes to painting, you could use a brush and you could use a brush and a roller combination. I would say it's rather uncommon in the home setting, but you could even spray your surfaces with an air gun. A brush is a wonderful thing. There's a certain zen if you could master how to work with one properly and I'll share some tips and techniques on that in a moment. Personally, I recommend for the novice to use a combination of brush and roller. I like a proper brush, one that costs a bit more, and that's in contrast to those cheap throwaway ones with bristles that the hair falls out or ones made of foam finger-like material. Here's a bit of backstory on the logic of brush and roller. I like to think of it this way. Brush for finish work, roller for coverage. The brush allows you to paint those areas that a roller can't get into. The inner contours of a handhold, for example. The edges of a telescoping cover that are just too big. The roller is going to let you apply, however, a good amount of paint quickly and evenly, and it will help you avoid drips and runs. Let's walk the walk. We'll talk about practice and technique as you go through. One of the first things you have to do is start by thoroughly mixing your primer. You mix it some, 
and then you mix it some more. There has to be an extremely well dispersed mix of the solids, the resins, the thinners, and constituents in the paint for the paint to perform and do its thing. To hide right, to spread well, to flatten out right, to fill in any of the pores and surfaces and so on. Even if they shook it at the store, do not underestimate mixing your paint at home. It only takes a little bit more time to make it right. And you could do it with the little stirring stick they give, but boy, you're going to work hard at it. I often take a drill with a rod that has a paddle at the end, and I whip it up pretty good. So, step one in the physical practice, mix your paints. Don't underestimate this. With the paint well mixed, let's start with the brush. Dip the brush one third of its bristles down and then pull it up and give it a light tap on the inside of the can. A pro painter that I had as a business partner once, his name was Dave, taught me that this sets the paint in the center of the brush and it helps to negate any of the possible paint dripping from the brush when you're taking it from the can to the surface. Dave's family came from a background of generations of house painters. He taught me a lot of what I'm going to pass along. You bring it to the surface and with light pressure, spread the paint. And actually, you're just going to first start with nooks and crannies. Then you'll paint the surrounding surfaces. If you're only using a brush over a large flat panel, you're going to consider painting a W. Uh, more on that in a second. But imagine you have a side of a hive in front of you. It's got the big flat surface and the handheld cut out. Paint the top edge of the handheld. Paint the inner surface of the handheld. Paint above the handheld. Paint around the handheld. And here you could use whatever technique you need in order to get the paint in. And peek down, look, see, that make sure that you got every part of the raw wood covered. Then when you're finished with that, wipe it through with long flat strokes to smooth the paint out and distribute it evenly. Now when you come back to the flat panel and you're dipping your brush, tapping it and bringing it to the surface, start in the upper left hand corner and paint a diagonal strip from the upper left to the bottom on the piece. Then diagonally from the upper right to the bottom on the piece. Then from the center bottom to the top at the center, and again center bottom to the upper left center. What I just described is the W, the strokes of a W. Left side, right side, then inner right side, inner left side. I, It's odd, I know, but stay with me here. Next, paint the surfaces from left to right with the brush. You could dip it again or just use what's on the surfaces to spread that out. You're dragging the brush through the vertical strips, diagonal strips, from top to bottom. The premise of this technique is that you move left to right and whatever bands you have laid down in that W will distribute more evenly across the surface. It, it's, it's weird to talk about. 
but let me tell you this in another way and it'll help illustrate the difference. If you dipped your brush and started to the left and moved right horizontally until you ran out of paint, then you dip your brush and you start from the left and you move horizontally to the right, using this approach, you're gonna have this thick, heavy coat of paint on the left side of the panel and thinner, sparser coating on the right side of the panel. Now, if you think about what I said before, you start with a diagonal stroke down the left, then you down the right, then down the center, and down the center, you'll realize that there's thicker coats of paint distributed across the panel, and all you're doing is sweeping across to distribute that to one final surface. Isn't that ingenious? When he taught me that, especially with painting like four by eight panels and things like that, it really made a huge difference in how well the surfaces were covered. Now, coming back to something that I talked about before in painting the handheld, there's an actual technique that I have to talk about when using a brush. The way to say this is sweep, don't dab. This is kind of a Kevin moment. Sweep. Don't be a stabber and a dabber. When you paint with a brush, especially on a flat surface, have the brush moving when it hits the surface and sweep along the surface until you reach the end or run out of paint. Then sweep back with the same motion. It's not dab, 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 like you're pushing a marble across the surface. Long flowing motions with a brush is the way to go. Sometimes, coming back to the handhold cutout, you could dab to get in all the corners, and perhaps that's required for the thing that you're painting, but in the end, always sweep that out and spread the paint evenly and sweep the finish. End of that Kevin moment. So far we've been talking about brush. Now let's take that one step further. Let's say you're using the paintbrush and a roller system. The paintbrush can get into the nooks and crannies and the roller can make quick work of the flat surfaces. You want to consider your approach with the roller included and you're going to roll from left to right then recharge and roll from right to left, top to bottom. And the cool thing with the roller is no matter how you actually do it, you can actually cover a lot of ground, get a uniform surface, and your technique is not as critical. Now, when you're doing a really bigger panel, you're going to want to do the W thing that I talked about. But a lot of times with the smaller panels of a hot body, it's just a matter of making sure you have uniform coverage. For painting hive pieces, this is the end game here. I like to paint all the intricate stuff with a brush and then use a roller that's about three inches in diameter with a matching paint pan for the smaller brush. And the rollers that I choose have a rather short nap on them to get a smooth finish. And again, what nap you choose, the hair length of the actual roller, will make a difference in how smooth the paint goes on. And for this, I do like kind of sometimes those foam ones. They pretty give a pretty good smooth surface and help to lay that paint flat so that it flattens out. 
Yeah, we'll keep expanding on that in a second. Right now, what I want to talk about is the temperature factor. As important as technique is to getting a good surface, temperature is equally in that mix. Each can of primer and paint will say on the side what the optimal temperatures are for application. And universally, you can assume around 70 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit is usually ideal. If you think about paint in their formulation, they're made of different ingredients and some of them are designed to aid in leveling. Maybe the oils that flatten out and others that aid in drying. If you take a thick oil, just saying that's a constituent of paint, and pour it out, the viscosity of when it's cold will impact how it ends up flattening on that surface. If it's too hot, it runs all over the place. And at the temperature of just right, it will flatten out smoothly. And then whatever drying agents are there will kick in and make your paint set. If it's too cold, the ridges left by the individual bristles will stay as peaks and valleys. If it's too hot, they'll set that way too. In just right land, they will smooth out and set to a glossy smooth surface. When it comes to rollers, they often leave that little bit of a dimpled surface. That's why a smooth foam roller may negate some of that for you. And the warmth and depth of the paint can as you start. If you have it in a cold garage and you bring it out into the warm outside or wherever you're doing it, all of those things determine whether you have a flat surface, a paint surface, a pebble surface, and so on. So try to make sure your paints are warm, room temperature, and paint in a room that has the optimal temp for the paint being used. Now, sometimes that's not a practical thing to have. And when you paint with the brush, you see the brush strokes in it from the bristles. One thing Dave taught me and others, uh, Pendergast signs when I worked for them for a while is if you have a long horizontal piece like a hive box where the sides are short but long, you know what I mean? Because you know what a hive box looks like. You tend to sweep from left to right. If the ridges of a cold paint lock in that way, water cascading down will sit on the top edges of the ridges. Are you following me here? Now, what they taught me to do is in less than optimal, and this seems counterintuitive when you paint, instead of sweeping left to right on the long plane, sweep up and down on the short plane. On the short plane. The reason for that is the grooves that are left in paint that doesn't flatten out are running top to bottom and water runs through the groove. It doesn't sit on the edge of the groove. And it tends to hold left less water on the surface and that's better for longevity of boxes. So when I used to paint my sign panels, if it was a cool day, and sometimes that's the way it goes when you're in the sign shop, I would always finish by painting on whatever way the wood was going to be so that the strokes were up and down and water would run off the panel. Okay, let's put that away and we'll move along. As we talk about paint surfaces, we have to talk about application of paint thick versus thin. You might think that thick would be better. It might provide more 
protection. But often experts will say that's not the case. Some of what I understand has to do with the mix of ingredients that we've already given you some insight to, the drying, the leveling. If the paint's too thick, different things can happen. For example, the surface could set up in a layer, meaning the outer edge exposed to the air dries, and the residual paint underneath would still be soft set. Ideally for the paint to be great, especially since you took the time to distribute it evenly when you mixed it, you would have it dry in an optimal time so it stays dispersed. Some of the soft set layer could be subject to separating out because it's allowed to redistribute when wet. Think of a can of paint that was mixed from the store, sat on the shelf, and requires remixing prior to application. Same thing, but in a smaller scale. Universally, it has been suggested that several thin coats work better than one thick coat. For that reason, I typically go with two uniform coats of primer and two top coats. It's a little more work, but nowadays with fast-drying latex paint systems, by the time you paint a few panels in succession, things are dry, and you can go back to that first panel after painting the last one on the line. When you use a two-coat approach, don't worry if the first ones let a little wood show through. That's actually to be expected, and again, thin paints are a better way to go. Pay special attention to get good coverage on the end grains though, especially the ones on finger joints. And if you find that the milling of the process of those finger joints looks really rough, that's not a good thing. Uh, in the case of that, sometimes you could just sand those down a little bit to get them flatter. Or opposite of what I just said, you're gonna paint the paint a little heavier there. And the reason being is end grains tend to soak up some of the moisture. If you put a thin coat on there, it's actually going to absorb through and it's not going to provide the protection. So in this instance, the one exception, go a little heavier on those end grains, especially when you're doing primer. And you'll get a smoother top coat too for that. Now, while we talked about that drying time between coats, I like to allow some time if possible for the primer to fully dry and cure before starting in on the top coat. What I mean by that is the primer is going to dry quickly, but it does take a touch of time for it to flash off and harden. You could tell the difference, I think, by touching it when it flashes off. A fresh primer that could use a little more time has this kind of wet, cool sensation to it, as opposed to opposed, opposed to a low drag feel that you get with your fingertips. I also have a thought in my head about drying times. I like the primers to be dry before I apply another coat. But when it comes to the top coats, I don't mind the first coat being a little soft when I'm going in for the second one, as I kind of help, I think it helps to blend the top coats together. What I mean by this is the top coat can be dry, but fresh, unlike the primer, which I asked you to let dry a little more when that second coat goes on. Does that make sense? I just kind of think it helps the top coats bind together better. I've found in my paint business that if I did a top coat one day, 
and a top coat several days later, I sometimes had to wipe them with a thinner to reactivate that coat that hardened off so the top one bound with it. You could avoid that by painting them when they're still relatively fresh. I'm at the odds and ends point of this. I said in the beginning I was going to be comprehensive and wanted an all-in-one place and kind of shoveling it down here, but I guess there's one thing that has to be said. The paint system I spoke of just covered will stand the test of time. I have boxes that were painted the first year we started back in April 2008, and the paint finishes have stood up. Yeah, they're a bit faded from being out in the sun, but they have not peeled, the wood is not rotted, and they passed the test of time. Now, I have repainted some of my boxes over time just because I switched colors. Originally, we painted our stuff white, but then somewhere along the way, I adopted a gray and green motif, and a few boxes were given a fresh coat of paint. For those, I did what I said, which was wipe them down with a, a proper primer or thinner to try and reactivate the binding there so that the paint would seal, and it worked okay. Uh, to that end, I wanted to say, and I have to cover a couple of these things that people want to know about paint systems, the color you choose is really up to you. White's traditional. Lighter colors are more recommended because... Some people feel that you put bees in dark boxes. It's not a good thing to do. But I've seen bees in colors that are outlandish, and they simply don't seem to mind. I kind of like painting the roof and the bottom board contrasting or complementary colors and feel like it's a little bit of a signature to come up with a color scheme. But plain white from top to bottom is perfectly fine and very traditional. I don't want to go too far on this, but there's just one or two more odds and ends that I have to say out loud because I know there's a few things unanswered. When we teach this to new beekeepers, the first thing inevitably someone asks is, do you paint the bottom of the bottom boards? I say yes, but is it necessary? Probably not. The bottom does not expose to the sun, the rain, but it's subject to moisture. I think of it this way, and let's talk about a screen bottom board. The wood that holds that together does a lot more work than a solid bottom board. Those three vertical sides hold all of the weight, meaning the two long sides in the back. And, you know, if the wood that's flat on the plane that serves as the floor of the bottom board gets wet, I feel like it's subject to pressures that could make the sides splay out. This isn't a theoretical thing for me. I've seen it. If you take the time to paint the bottom board, the floor, on the bottom of it, meaning the underside, it would negate the wood having any opportunity to soak up moisture. And for that reason, I always take the time to paint them. I feel like when they get wet, the floorboards, whether it's a solid bottom board or a screen bottom board, they lose their ability to hold their structure. And don't get me wrong. Uh, I know a lot of people who don't bother and their hives do perfectly fine. It's a byproduct of maybe where you live. It's wetter there, drier, some other places and so. But if you 
feel like it. It's just a couple extra minutes to paint that bottom edge. Another footnote, blue tape, shop rags, they're your friends. It's tough to paint a top cover and not get paint on the metalwork. You could simply solve the difficulties by using blue painter's tape. A short time to tape things up lets you focus more on laying the paint down, especially if you're not too deft at wielding a brush. As to the shop rags, if you peel that tape back and you find paint where you didn't want it, just wipe it off by pressing hard against the rag in a single direction. If you try to dab at it, sweep at it, whatever, it's going to smear it. But if you push hard, it actually presses it into the rag and pulls it up. Summing up painting, ensure the panel is scrupulously clean. If you left it sit for any period of time, even the tiniest layer of dust is going to settle and that is going to negate the ability to bind. So give it the proper prep. Stir your paint, a light coat to start, finish off with a medium coat. Take the time to work out any drips, overruns, coverage, thin spots, and things that catch your attention. You put some music on and have a good old time. Third part of the episode frames. It's about the basics of building frames and, you know, prepping a hive kit would not be complete without building the corresponding frames. And I'm going to talk about, you know, some tips, tricks, building frames. It can get a bit tedious, but maybe this will help you along. I have to take a moment and have a doggy ducky horsey overview of frames describing the pieces and a few of their characteristics so that as I tell you how to do things, we're all in the same plane. And of course, frames have four pieces, the top bar, two sidebars, and some form of bottom bar. To qualify the phrase, some kind, most frames designs have coalesced into a pseudo standard design for the top and the sidebars. But there's a number of different takes on the bottom bar design, and it's really up to the vendor and their offerings. When we talk about offerings, some offer one solid bar. Others offer various styles. Single bar, two bar, bar with a groove all the way through, bar with a channel for the foundation to sit in. I think that kind of illustrates that the fabrication of the bottom bar is going to have to be suited to the design that you choose. When assembling frames like construction of the boxes, the basics of building it square and employing the right techniques to glue and nail it are in play. Building frames is mostly about getting things nailed together in a proper way, and the truth is, they are a little ungainly when it comes to working on them due to their awkward shape. I've watched my fair share of beekeepers trying to build a frame in their lap, in a sitting position, hammering nails while holding the piece in the air and expending a lot of energy. So the first recommendation is to do one of two things. Find a work surface to fabricate on and and or employ a frame jig which is something i'll talk about in a few minutes uh, like building a box there's several ways to go about something so find your groove here i'm going to describe one way that i would picture from the process but everyone's workspace varies so you have to find a solution that works for you ideally you're going to have a high bench or a table to work on be mindful to protect the surfaces 
if your kitchen or dining room table is where you're working. Like a high box, the frames are glued first, then nailed, and setup means to apply the glue to the upper part of the sidebars, distributing the glue as described earlier to any of the surfaces, flat, level, even, and they're gonna mate up to the top bar during insertion. We're gonna talk about the technique of a wet fit. So what I mean by this is when you're building the frames one at a time, glue the top of the sidebar, number one, and insert it into the top bar. Then do the same with sidebar number two. Don't nail it yet. Take the top bar with the protruding sidebars inserted and turn it over. Place it top bar down on the surface. What you end up with is the top bar resting on the flat table and the two bottom edges of the sidebars presenting to you for insertion of the bottom bar. Again, apply glue to the slots in the sidebars, one and two, that are protruding at you, and then insert the bottom bar, nestling it down. If you need to, use a damp cloth to wipe away any of the glue that is squeezed out while inserting the bars, and know that, yeah, you're probably gonna get some glue on your table to account for that in this wet fit step. A Kevin moment, one thing that differs, and you have to kind of get a feel for it, sometimes you can simply dive right in and wet fit these right from the get-go, follow the process I just shared. Other times, and like the joints of a high box I talked about earlier in the show, you might benefit from a dry fit assembly prior to diving right in and gluing up the frames. Different manufacturers have different tolerances. If you find that you have difficulty with fitting the pieces together because things are really snug, dry fit each frame prior to glue. But if it's not a concern, you could set the glue and nail right from the get-go. End of Kevin moment. With the bottom bar inserted, visually inspect the sidebars to make sure they're at a 90-degree angle to the bottom bar and to the top and then commence nailing the bottom bar into the sidebars. As stated earlier, there are several forms of bottom bars, and this also varies if you're using wax foundation versus plastic foundation. I would like to think that every bottom bar attachment could accommodate two nails on each side for the extra holding power, but alas, some frames are just not designed for that. In driving the nails, take extra time before hammering away to make sure the nail is pointed straight up and down and not at an angle when you start or you risk the nail shooting out of the side. Start with a moderate blow of the hammer and take your time driving it to the finish. Unlike before, a smaller, lightweight hammer used in this situation might actually be more favorable to a moderately weighted hammer because control, not force, is more important here. Now it has to be said that even if you do everything right, there will be some oopses. It's pretty hard. Think nailing after nailing after nailing, frame after frame, that you're going to drive every nail well. If you do the math, that's four nails on the bottom for every frame times 40 frames, two deeps, two mediums. You're bound to have a few go wrong and sometimes you do it right only to have the grain of the wood twist the nail and have it sticking out the side. If you find that a nail twists, 
or shoots out the side, you got to take it out. The first thing to know about this task is if you watch closely as you're driving the nails, you can note that the nail is coming out of the side before you drive it all the way in. Do take the time to be attentive as it makes it much easier to pull the nail out if the head is still available for you. The opposite is true. You've driven the nail all the way down and you have to use a hammer or needle nose pliers to push the nail out from the pointy end protruding out. That's really time wasting. One question I get from beekeepers is, if the pointy edge is sticking out just a little bit, is it okay to leave it there? My short answer is no. (laughs) And I'll take a moment to explain why. The thing you want to consider is, What would happen if you run your hive tool along the surface of the sidebar and it gets to the point sticking out? It's going to catch and wedge under the nail. If you follow good practice and rotate out old foundation and comb in time, you will surely run your hive tool along the bar to clean off the built-up comb and encounter the scenario I just suggested. There are other scenarios where this condition will trip you up for brevity. Just going to move on. Suffice it to say, I recommend that you correct the situation. Now, correcting that errant nail, if you pull the nail out and you pick up a straight nail and drive it back in the same hole, it will almost assuredly follow the same path. One thing about bottom bars specifically is that you don't have a lot of real estate to find an alternate space to drive a nail. Uh, One way to solve the problem is to employ a different fix for an errant hole by having a cordless drill on the side fitted with a small pilot drill. It's a drill bit just smaller than the dimension of your nail. You're going to hit the hole that you started with, but you're going to drill a small pilot hole, straight pilot hole. And then you take your straight nail and drive it into the same hole and it'll find the new straight path and you'll be able to get the nail in without it shooting out the side. There's a few techniques for this. Talking about drilling the pilot hole. The first is don't drill it too deep. Hopefully the nail will bypass the errant curve in the wood and find some solid wood to sink in. Second, since you drilled a hole, you might consider a little longer nail instead of the conventional ones you're using, something that has a little thicker diameter, just so you can get that holding power. And I know what you're thinking, that seems awful fussy. Yep. It all depends on your view of the world. I can reconcile it this way. Even if you drilled a pilot hole to solve the problem and you drove the nail in, it makes the holding power of the nail dubious. But... In the end, that nail is still a pin that provides an affixed point, and you can kind of count on the holding power of the other nail if it goes in straight to serve the purpose. Last word on driving the bottom nail, like the technique before. Just partially drive that nail and ensure the frame is perpendicular to the bottom bottom bar before driving it home. Take your time. Do your best to get the frame square during fabrication. It does matter. Now we're going to take the frame and flip it over and nail the top side. But before you do, take a damp cloth. Just wipe off any errant glue that has squeezed out when you fabricated the bottom piece. 
Frames turned over, you're ready to nail the top bar. Take a quick peek at the square. The funny thing about the nails for this is they're a little lightweight. So if your frame is a little out of square, you can just give it a little bit of a twist to square it up. Talking about the fabrication you did with the bottom bar. So inspect the frame, visualize what I'm going to tell you here and look where the top bar sits over that sidebar. Envision that a pair of nails are going to go down through the top bar and into the sidebar. You want to do your best to get the nails centered through the top of the sidebar as you drive them in. I drive the first of the two nails partway through on one side. Then I go to the other side and I drive another nail partway through. I know this seems odd, but it affords me a moment to make sure that the sides are perpendicular to the top bar before fully driving them through. I hammer the first nail fully, watching the sidebar remains at a 90 degree angle, and then I drive the other side. With one in on one side and one in on the other side, I finish driving the top nails by nailing the mate to the first one on the left and the second one on the right. It's also possible here that a nail will go errant and curl out through the side of the sidebar. That's why I was saying to you, visualize the center and do the best you can. Like the description of the bottom bar remediation, take the same steps here and do not leave nails sticking out the interior or exterior side of the sidebars. With the top nailing done, take a moment once again to wipe away any of the glue that may have pressed out of the joint with the nailing activity and just visually inspect the frame that it's square and give it a little push-pull twist if you need to to get it set up. Now there is one more step and when it comes to building frames this could universally be considered the most critical step. What I'm talking about is something I will refer to as the side nail. Envision the nails that you just drove into the top bar like two spikes into the top grain of the sidebar. If you wanted to dislodge them, you simply could pry against the top bar and in short order, they'd be separated. Of course, the one thing you do universally in managing bees and dislodging frames from the box is pry against that top bar during inspections and you would not want to encounter frames separating when live bees are there. And yes, I've helped newbies who didn't know about this side nail thing and will just say, been there, done that. This side nail goes through the sidebar, through the top bar, and into the sidebar on the far side. It serves to counter that pry pressure that would pull the nails out if you pried the top bar in opposition of the nails that go down through the top. With the side nail, you are creating a perpendicular way to lock in the top bar to the sidebars and it's just crucial that this does not get missed. The process is mostly simple. Take the frame you're working on and lay it flat on your work surface. Place the nail at the top square of the top bar and nail it through. The verbal telling of this is a little lacking, so let me expand on that. Hold the sidebar in your hand. Picture what it looks like in its construction. At the top of the bar, there is a recess that joins up with the top bar. And as a result, 
There are two protrusions sticking up that envelope the top bar when the pieces are nested together. Those protrusion, by my way of thinking, are like little ears. And the shape of them is usually two small squares when you're looking at them side on. When you drive the side nail, you want to set the point to the center of that square and assure that you're going through the best spot of the ear and getting the best penetration through the top bar. Here's one thing that has to be said, pointed out about this side nail. If you remember the steps for nailing the top bar, we said drive the nails through the center of the top of the sidebar from the top. What? When considering the side nail, if you nail a dead center in that ear, you're likely going to drive that nail through and it will encounter one or both of the nails that are centered from the top nailing. Now, I just said to find the center of that square for the ears. Actually, to be more specific and realistic, you have to kind of favor it to the left a little or favor it to the right in order to avoid colliding with the opposing top bar nails. So the guidance here really is drive the nail just slightly off center to avoid any collisions. So at this point, we're 99% there or 100% there, depending on the style of frame that you've selected. But I want to talk about wedge frames. Fundamentally, you're complete, but if you're using wedge frames, you got one more step. A wedge frame requires you to dislodge the wedge, insert the foundation, and nail the wedge cleat to secure the wired foundation. Given there's some fabrication and nailing involved here, let me run that down so the telling is comprehensive, and we'll start with dislodging the wedge. Separating the wedge from the frame is a fairly straightforward process. Simply slide a box cutter along the groove and cut a thin kerf that is left to separate the wedge from the top bar. There is, however, a bit of finesse or technique to this that makes the next step a little more efficient. When you put the point of the box cutter or whatever blade you're using into the slot, lay it flat against the wood and ensure the point is in the downward facing position. The premise of what I'm describing, the way you hold the knife, is that you want to cut the kerf off flush with the flat edge of the top bar. If you just stick the box cutter blade in the slot and cut away willy-nilly, it'll wave up and down and then the next step will be a little more tedious and I'll explain. When you cut the wedge off in the manner that I said, there'll be a little trimming required. If you've followed the instruction given, the excess material is gonna come off with the wedge. If you cut with no precision, then you're going to be faced with trimming off the excess from the top bar and the wedge, so it saves a step. The short of this is just keep this in mind as you start in and after a while you'll get the gist of what I'm saying and you'll zip off the wedge, run the blade against the fin on the wedge piece and then get to the task of securing the foundation. In a logical sense with the wedge off the next step would be to put the foundation in but before we go there let me say something out loud. Wisdom and experience would dictate that you do not do this ahead of time. In the course of sitting around, frames get bumped, boxes get knocked into, and while foundation is not terribly 
dainty, especially crimped wire, it's also not that durable. I always plan a window to put foundation in the night before deployment. I know that I have less breakage that way, and there's an added benefit of odor. When the foundation pack is in pack form, it holds the odor of the wax more. When you separate it and mount it into frames, the odor, if done last minute, is enticing to us, and it's really enticing to the bees. If you did this days or weeks ahead of time, I find that odor dissipates. It's not there. And I want to think that that's not as appealing to the bees either. So wait till the last moment if you can. And I believe that's going to help you with adoption of your wax and have the bees start in right away when the odor of the wax material is fresh. Okay, that aside, let's talk about the last nailing job, which is nailing the wedge. I have to do this, as I've heard the term and I don't want to leave it out. Some beekeepers refer to the wedge as a cleat. I'm not sure the origin of this, but I guess that when you fasten something down in the manner that the wedge is akin to a cleat in some other industry, just saying this, if you hear that term, it's all one and the same. I don't want to confuse people. Let's assume that you slid the crimp wired foundation into your frame and you have returned the cleat wedge to the top bar and now you're ready to nail it to secure the wires underneath. Now comes to the part of dealing with the teeny tiny nails that you use to affix the wedge. I have big hands and large fingers and they're just not suited for pinching nails with my fingertips while you're trying to find the head with a small hammer. So it's time to talk to about the appropriate nails for wedge bars, meaning wedge nails, and how to, you know, work with them. Suggestions on that. Suffice it to say, once again, manufacturers will sell you the nails and you would be well served to simply order your nails while placing your order for your frames, especially if you're using wedge style frames. There is one insider tip here that you may have not considered. I'm going to share it to give it the light of day. Different manufacturers choose different thicknesses for how they cut their wedges. Some of them are thin. Some of them are thicker and more substantial. When you drive a nail to hold a wedge, you want to ensure that the nail matches both the thickness of the cleat or wedge, and more importantly, it doesn't exceed the depth of the top bar. Meaning, when you're building frames from different manufacturers, the thickness of that top bar, including the wedge, varies. So you have to be mindful of this. And it's especially true if you personally are sourcing your own nails. If your nail is even a tick too long, it's going to cause issues. The point of the nail pops through the top edge of the top bar. And when you run your hive tool over that top edge, it catches on every spot the tip protrudes. Again, ask me how I know. Before nailing your wedges, take the nail and size it up to make sure that it's not at risk of being driven so deep that the tip comes through the top edge of the top bar from underneath. This brings us to ways to try and drive that nail while presenting it for hammering and 
Here's a few suggestions to consider. One of the more common approaches is to hold the nail in a pair of needle nose pliers. Hold the pliers with your nail in your non-dominant hand. For most of us, that's left hand. And yeah, it's a bit awkward to do that. While you drive the nail with your dominant hand, again, for most of us, that would be our right hand. Tap, tap, tap to set the nail and then move the pliers out of the way and drive it with the finesse required so you don't widely swing and hit the wax foundation. It requires three nails, one in the center, two to the sides, but not too close to the sidebars. A second method is not hammered per se, but a pressing method, and it requires a specialized tool. Woodworkers have devised a special tool that resembles something like a screwdriver or a woodworker's awl. It has a solid shaft with a spring-loaded tube on the end. You take your nail head and insert it into the tube, leaving the point of the nail protruding. You put the point on the wood where you want to drive the nail, and you push on the end of the tool, and the shaft slides through the spring-loaded center of the tube, and it drives the nail into the wood. It takes a bit of practice and a bit of force to plunge that nail, but you can get used to it, and given the nails are relatively small, not too hard to do with a little bit of practice. A third method is a variation on the first one. It employs a bit of a procedural change. In this method, you lay the wedge on your work surface and pre-prep the nails for driving by tapping them in and setting them partially before bringing the wedge to the frame. You could use the needle nose plier approach, the plunge approach, or set the nail, if you can, by holding it with your fingers. I find that if you do it this way, set the nails before you bring it over to the bar, the fingers work for some reason. It's just hard to get your fingers in next to the foundation when it's in there. In contrast, when the wedge is holding to the foundation in place and it's inset on the top bars, finger method just flat out doesn't work. There is one tip that I've heard of recently, and this seems as good a place as any to share. It employs a special tool again, affixing a small magnet to the end of a rod. Maybe a pencil would work. It requires a bit of MacGyvering, but the point of this is you would hold the rod or pencil with a pinpoint magnet on the end and you'd stick the nail to it. So the magnet's where a racer would be. And then you hold the nail perpendicular to the wedge and it's probably going to be less awkward in your non-dominant hand than trying to hold a pair of needle nose pliers. Once you give it a few taps to set the nail, you give the little pencil or rod a little twist to break the seal from the magnet, and you drive the nail home. Now, of course, there's other ways to do this, but at this point, I think I've discussed the more common and conventional approaches. It's just time to move on. We just discussed building a standalone frame, and that's all well and good, but I'm here to say that there's a better way to do things these days. Building a single frame, one by one, is an antiquated notion since the introduction of the frame jig. A frame jig is a unitasker device, 
but unless you're buying frames pre-built, and by the way, you can do that, you should really invest in making or buying one of these devices. It's designed to hold 10 frames at a time so that they can be glued and nailed while being held in the optimal position to do so. How to use one to describe a frame jig is not too hard. It's a piece of hardware typically made from half inch wood pieces that forms a rectangle suitable for holding 10 end bars on one end and 10 end bars on the other end. You slide a holder board on each side and it provides pressure against those end bars to keep them in place for fabrication, usually through a bungee cord or some type of elastic band. To use this thing, you put, as we said, 10 ends in one side, 10 ends in the other, and you run glue on all the joints in one shot. And then you set the top bars in and nail away. Yep, that's different from what we talked about before where you start with the bottom bar, but it's okay. Once you have the 20 joints secure, 10 on one side, 10 on the other, you flip the thing over and you glue and secure the bottom bars. Then you remove the bungee cords and the holder bars and you finish things off the same way you did before by laying the frame down flat and popping in the side nail for the top bar. The benefit of this device is easy to see. It holds all the frames square when they are fastened in the device and it keeps your hands free to glue and nail. The efficiency of doing 10 frames at a time and the speed at which you can fabricate is exponentially better. Those who have built frames both ways will almost always certainly advocate for the utility of a frame jig if given the choice. So go look in a catalog or look online for plans on how to build one. They're really simple and quite frankly, the only way to go. This is going to end up the frame section of this. And actually I'm going to deviate from the program just a smidge here to add a couple things and do a checkpoint given the time invested so far. And I said at the beginning, it was going to be a long one. I have two more things to just run off. One of them is there's some odds and ends about woodworking that I wanted to share with you that will greatly improve your craft. And the second thing is I mentioned on the outset that I do things just a little different from conventional. So there'll be a part four, which is the bonus part. And I'll talk about how I do things in my workshop when it comes to fabricating the boxes little twist on the theme. So let's run those things down. The first one is let's go into tips and tricks. When you work with high woodenware, it's often made from soft pine and that's really an advantage to us as it's not prone to split when you're nailing it. Now, not all hives are made from pine, but this tip is universal. And since even pine does split on occasion, it's a good one to consider. It is said that a sharp nail contributes to wood splitting during the nailing process. And there's an age old trick that if you blunt the tip of the nail, it aids in preventing wood from splitting. When I say blunt the nail, this is what you do. You set the nail head down on a firm surface and with the point facing up, you give a tap, tap, tap to the sharp end of the nail to dull it, to blunt the point. 
This works because the blunt nail head punches through the wood fibers in lieu of separating them and the nail head ruptures the wood membranes instead of following the grain, which sometimes leads to a split. I have done this and through experience, it works. I learned this through a woodworking magazine a long time ago and it is still held to be a universal truth as far as I know from those in the know in the woodworking circles. Another related tip to help is to wet the nail or lubricate it. Woodworkers will dip a nail into a water cup and then drive it with a hammer. This tip is especially prevalent when working with harder woods. The water act as a lubricant during nailing and it does no harm to your processes. It's going to evaporate by wicking away through the wood. Now, if woodworking circles, there's other recommendations, including using lubricants here. I don't care for those suggestion. Instead of water, some may say to use petroleum jelly. If you're going to consider this, go with water, but the general gist as I understand it is less friction means less splitting. And that's a good thing. I don't necessarily do this, but I do know someone who's very crafty in wood and they employ this practice. They shared it at one of our beekeeping meetings. Another one that we kind of discussed, pilot holes. It's a fairly reasonable way to go to prevent splitting wood, but there's a lot of labor in drilling pilot holes with the number of nails required to fasten a hive stack. This isn't really a reasonable thing that you want to take on, but if you're committed to this as a process, I guess you could take the extra step, drill a pilot hole of the proper size for all the nails you intend to use. If it's not evident, the pilot hole needs to be a slightly smaller dimension than the fastener. So the fastener makes adequate contact with the wood. I say this obvious thing to point out that the only real way to know what size pilot hole to consider is the nail you're using. And even standard nails vary in size. The gauge of the shaft, the treatments on the nails, they all play a factor in the drill bit you might employ to do this. If this is something you're going to build in your process, at least do it the proper way. You're going to have to take something like a micrometer and measure the nail and then choose a slightly smaller drill bit that corresponds. To be honest, sure seems pretty fussy to me. I, you know, we're not building craft furniture to last for the ages. We're building bee boxes. Uh, but to be thorough, I put this one in here. A moment ago, alluded to nails fit for purpose for exterior applications. The common exterior nails are often stainless steel. And if they are, they will outlast the woodenware. Still, there's other treatments in the marketplace. And if you're staring at boxes of nails in the nail aisle, you're going to see hot dipped galvanized nails, cement coated nails, nails from aluminum and more. Some are cheaper than stainless steel and some are made for specific uses. The simplest thing to do, I think, is not fuss over the style and buy it from the big guys with your frames. Ironically, I think, what the big beekeeping sellers sell is more of a common nail and it's going to rust if exposed, but 
In the conventional method we just went through a bit ago, it's all encapsulated in paint and shouldn't be subject to moisture. Still, if you find that you want to go another way, and you're in the nail aisle of your preferred hardware store, just make sure the nail you choose is exterior grade. Also know that the most suitable when considering cost is the hot dipped galvanized version. It's not to be confused with a nail that's simply galvanized. Those do not hold up for long-term use. And like common box nails, they're going to rust too. Do consider the thickness of them if you're doing pilot holes. And, you know, look, most people, the, the easy thing to say about this is they don't fuss over this. They just buy their nails along with their hardware that they get when they order it from their beekeeping suppliers. At every beekeeping meeting I think I've ever been to, invariably when you talk about making boxes, someone mentions that they use a nail gun. So let's talk about that for a second. If you look at commercially produced equipment, the stuff you buy pre-assembled, it's not uncommon for you to find that they have been fabricated with pneumatic nail guns. Boxes often employ conventional nails and frames are wired with nail gun staples. There's a place in the workshop, especially for frame construction with a jig, to use a nail gun. And if you have one, boom, 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 right down the row, easy peasy, and you're all done. It's all good and a joy to witness the speed at which an operation can happen. But sometimes things are not all rosy. When you handcraft the boxes and frames with nails, you personally touch every nail and drive the hardware with care. Nail gun does not employ that same level of care and finesse, and it's really pretty common to see that the staples blast into the frames, take a banana-like turn, and end up protruding out the side. You really have to be diligent to set your air pressures right and know your tools, buy the right size staples, hardware, and even when everything is on the up and up, you should count on the need to laboriously extract errant fasteners that went to the wild side and replace them with customary hardware as a correction. I've used nail guns in the past and I find the experience hit and miss. Sometimes it works like a charm and sometimes you will experience that every third fastener driven blasts out the side and leaves you cussing. Maybe it's a setup, maybe it's the batch of wood could be the operator having a bad day, but rest assured, those are not fun days in the workshop. Still, there's something magical about nail guns. And if you happen to have the option to run that kind of rig, maybe you want to give it a try and see how it works. Since we just spoke of nail guns, it seems right to take a short sidebar and say there are some commercial staplers out there that could somewhat do what a nail gun does. Sansa pneumatic air system. I've seen them in work and you know they're a consideration but they're not that common and I think I'll just give it here as a mention and move along. Tips and tricks out of the way that's it. I just wanted to make sure that those things didn't get left to the side because inevitably as you're going through this everyone has personal experiences with this kind of stuff and they're going to raise the question what about this what about that I'm hoping at this point that I have everything covered. 
That's it. That's the conventional wisdom to do all the work that's required in order to get your hive sack prepped to go out and put on the stands. Part four, I mentioned that I'm going to go over the BK corner process. This is just a smidge of an alternative fabrication and paint process that I follow. It's something that I have evolved to do. I feel compelled that I was going to actually share what I do because I, if you come and ask me, how it's done and you find out I don't do it conventionally, you're going to wonder how I got to where I am. So, you know, just feel free to use the methods that I just covered. You'll do just fine. Or, you know, you can do what I did, which is change things up a little. I did this for simplicity and it suits my desire to work the way I want when I'm prepping equipment. And of course I'll explain. First difference, I paint my boxes unassembled. I don't fabricate my boxes and then paint them whole. The whole reason for this will become evident in a second. The second thing is I use screws. More specifically, trim head screws to fabricate my boxes and I don't glue them. Um, in lieu of nails, I have swapped out the hardware. Now, if we start to look at the implication of the change, my motivation is two-part. First is, uh, I just prefer screwing things together over nailing them. And more on this in a little bit later, but whenever I'm in the workshop, if I have a choice, anything that I'm building, I prefer to use screws. And I think it saves me time because I have experienced that screws negate the need to glue the joints. And you heard that right. I don't glue my boxes with this method. If you think about it, if I did glue the boxes, then I couldn't take them apart later should the knees arise. And that begs the question, do you really ever need to take your boxes apart? The short answer is, it's pretty darn uncommon. But for me, I've done it. I have taken apart boxes that had tattered edge from repeated assault from a local, you know, from a hive tool and a local insertion point that you always use, that right corner. I've swapped out a gouged end for a new one. It's not a common thing, but I've done it on a couple of occasions now. And you simply grab the drill, put the square head bit in, back the screws out with the tap, tap, tap of a rubber mallet. Things are freed up and you can make the exchange. And, you know, I've built enough boxes and have enough spare parts laying around that I do have ends prepped ready to go that I could swap out. Uh, Kevin moment. If you ever find that you do take out a side, consider the benefit of that scrap piece that you are prepped to discard, which is the handhold. While the lower right-hand corner might be dinged in the example I said a moment, if the entire piece is sound, it can still see some life and be repurposed to a nuke box or something. You simply zip off whatever the offending problem is with a table saw. And yes, you may have to use a butt joint instead of a finger joint, but it easily can be employed to be a nuke or something else. And yeah, been here and done that. End of Kevin moment. So I actually fully paint my pieces individually, and then I screw them together in a jig that I made that has the corner clamps affixed to a base and it keeps everything square. 
I like being able to paint a piece at a time flat on the table. This method affords me that option. Now don't get me wrong, sometimes I have painted assembled boxes. And a moment ago I forgot to mention a tip. It's what I'll call maybe the pipe method. What I've done in the past is slide my hive boxes onto a pipe suspended at eye level. My garage has open rafters and if I take two ropes, strings, whatever you have, tie them together to make two loops around the rafters, and then if you put one on one side, one on the other, and you stick the pipe through the loop and let it hang, the pipe, if you tie the things right, will be suspended at eye level and then you grab the end of the pipe, you pull it out of the loop, you slide the hive body or the pipe through the hole, and then you put it back on the loop and the hive box is hanging right there in front of you. The cool thing about this is take your brush, take your roller, paint the first side, then grab the box and tilt it up so that the corner is resting on the pipe and presenting you the other side, paint that side, tilt it up so the next corner is, and like a rotisserie, the thing rotates and it's right in front of you, and then it sits there in front of you to dry. And you could work down the line with multiple boxes on the pipe. Do put all the boxes on at once. Don't paint one and then go down and try and put another one on. Put all the boxes on and then work your way left to right, right to left, whatever you're doing. Pretty sure I have a video on that in YouTube somewhere. And if I could figure it out, I'll put a show note and the links to it so you can better visualize it if that didn't make sense to you. Coming back to the notion of trim head screws, and I'm going to get too far without taking a moment to talk about what they are. It's a thin screw. It features a shape not unlike a nail, but it differs from a conventional screw, say like a sheetrock fastener in that it has a small dimension head at the top. Ah, uh, sheetrock fastener. That made me think of another tip. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't use those. Sheetrock fasteners are not meant for outside. They will rust and wreck your, your stuff. And they tend to rust badly, which means when you try to pop them out, the head breaks off and it leaves the screw part, the shaft, in the wood. Don't. Nay, nay. When it comes to trim head screws though, they really work well when mated with the pre-drilled holes that manufacturers employ. They're essentially a screw version of a 7D nail. I could use my cordless drill to zip in screw after screw after screw and I never pick up a hammer. Now screwing versus hammering, I have nothing against hammering, but if I'm to be honest, sometimes hammering nail after nail after nail, I get a little sloppy. I bend nails over, I ding the boxes with Aaron strikes that aren't on point, and well, I just find the process of box assembly easier for me when I switch to trim head screws. The one drawback of a trim head screw is it's a little costlier. I mean, obviously screws cost more than nails. And it requires a special driving bit for the trim head screw, but in the end, I plan to have a box in service for decades. <laughs> you know, and that cost spread over time is negligible for my way of thinking. 
If you drive them right, the heads of the screws sit flush with the surface and the added benefit of painting the boxes beforehand is that upon fastening them together with screws, you don't have to paint the heads. And therefore, you can reverse the screw out and disassemble the box years later. I think I have to take a moment here to call out one fact that has to be considered. I know exactly which boxes use this approach in my stacks because they have all the little black dimples where the holes are in the finger joints. Now if you do this long enough and you collaborate enough, you end up with other people's boxes and things like that in the mix. I always know when I'm staring at a box that it was somebody else's because it doesn't have this. I mentioned before that sheetrock screws rust, so do these. This simple answer is no, never, not once. At least the brand I use, have I ever seen a trim head screw even develop a patina? If I zip one out, they look exactly the day that I drove them in. If this really bothered you in some way, meaning see all the dimples, the lack of uniformity that the screws were showing in the paint job, I'd imagine you could just dab them with a light cover of paint. You don't have to cover them like you're painting the wood to envelope it. Just don't go too crazy or you're going to fill in the square that the bit's supposed to go in. But I suppose if you take in that notion even further and you did actually zip them together and paint the boxes, with some due diligence you could probably press the square head in unlike a Phillips head which would likely be a no-go and you know, if you were really determined one of them didn't work, you can get in there with a pin or something and gouge that out to the point where the square head was able to take purchase. As to the exposed screw heads on my boxes, I actually dig the way it looks with the trim head showing. I think it gives a bit of a chic industrial looks to my boxes. They have some kind of character that I'm not doing justice explaining, but... I do feel an appreciation for it each time I look at the differentiation of my boxes out in the yard compared to, you know, people's houses that I visit. But I digress on all the exploration of screw versus nail dynamics. I believe in this system enough to share it out loud here with you. Stand by it. But I also say it's completely your choice optional. You know, support the tried and true method of conventionality. Glue and nail your boxes and then later, if you want to experiment, you go right ahead. We're at the end of the journey. And if you're still with me, well, you get credit for fortitude. I know that there was an overabundance of detail. And I'm sure positive that there's things that I probably forgot. Or simply just don't know about. Or maybe I'm not doing it quite right and there's a better way. Uh... But at least you know everything that I know of. Whatever the case, the whole point of this episode was to share what I've learned over a decade plus in hopes that maybe it'll make the job a little bit easier for you. And of course, as I stated earlier, there are many ways to do things in time you might find other preferences or techniques. And that's the beauty of fabricating hive setups for your organization. You are one-on-one -on -one with each piece. And when they're used, you can really enjoy the experience know that you had a direct hand in the craftsmanship. I would only hope that the things that I taught you or the things that you learned paid forward 
If you have success in what you're doing, help new people learn how to do it. Uh, pass the trade on. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end. Take care and know that, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.